Certain friends and relatives feel that by attending retreats, I am A, frittering away my life and wasting my capabilities, B, being self-centered, self-indulgent, and escaping to Never Neverland, and C, ignoring reality, particularly the real human suffering which is so prevalent. What help can you give me to expand their perspective? Should give them a gift certificate. <laughs> of a retreat. <laughs> it's actually quite a common take on what we're doing from people who have not experienced. Uh, it's always interesting to me to hear people relate to practice as an escape from reality. (laughs) I think that the... (laughs) the average number of hours... This is some kind of statistic. The The average for Americans is watching seven hours of television a day. (laughs) that means a lot must be watching more than seven hours to make that the average Um, in terms of actually communicating what this is about We'll be talking about it much more next week, you know, in the different discussion groups. But I think the real communication is going to be in the way we are with people, not in what we say. Because unless people are really interested in finding out, it may be very hard to get in, you know, with concepts or ideas. It's much easier to communicate uh, in that way by being a certain way. You know, and if we are more loving and more accepting and less judgmental and more compassionate in our relationship to friends, to family, to relatives, that gets communicated. Years ago, somebody wrote to Ramdas after studying with him for a while. She went home. She was living in the uh, wilds of Canada, I think someplace in Saskatchewan or Alberta. And her family were fundamentalist Christians and very opposed to what she was doing. Um, And she went back and she was having this really hard time with her family. She wrote this letter to Ramdas which she was outlining all her difficulties. And at the very end of it, she said, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist and they love me when I'm a Buddha. What's to become Buddha? And we're not quite Buddha-like to pretend. (laughs) (laughs) 
you said we are the errors of our karma. Could you explain this? <laughs> From this question, actually, one can see the whole evolution of Buddha Dhamma. <laughs> because... <laughs> Actually, what I said in the New York accent (laughs) is that we are the heirs of our karma. (laughs) But probably a whole sect could be developed. on this Uh this is a few a few related ones (laughs) this question is at its fourth level of existence if if not answered tonight it passes out of existence (laughs) so I felt compelled to uh, put it at the top of the pile Steve has referred to the different realms as vibrational spaces. You mentioned Upandita's theory that heat from the Avicii hell causes the Bermuda Triangle. (laughs) And you implied that it was a physical place located beneath Bodh Gaya. There's another... Could you say more about the realms? Are they places, subtle states of mind that get crystallized? How do these realms interact with us? Deva intervention. How does someone like Deepama access them? Basically, are the realms physical, psychological, or a mixture? This was another one about realms. With so many world systems, isn't it possible that there is a realm where the devas take an interest in our practice of the Dharma and help us to move along the path? What part, if any, can prayer play? What is it proper to pray for? Can you please speak on the role of prayer in Buddhism? Are there deities, a god who will help us if we call on them? Is there a god controlling the whole show? The phrase is trust in God's will or pray to God has never has never sat well with me. Um, in terms of the realms and what they are, uh, I was trying to think of some image, you know, which might just give us a sense of their existing realities which we normally don't see. And I was thinking of something like you know, radio waves or TV signals. Uh, I mean, isn't it amazing? You turn on a switch, you turn on the TV, and there's a whole world there that somehow is being transmitted and yet... without having the proper access to those signals or to those waves or to those you know, energy vibrations, we wouldn't know they were there. I don't have a lot of experience with other realms, 
except in the old days on a few substances. <laughs> so I can't really say with any expertise what they are. My intuition is that it has something to do with tuning into a certain vibrational frequency. There are ways through different kinds of meditation practices to develop what uh, in the texts are called the abhinyas or the psychic powers where one can develop the divine eye, the divine ear so that beings can see these realms or hear uh, great distances. If you'd like to explore that, there are ways to do it. In some ways, I think that um, devas can exercise you know, a benevolence, a benevolent role in our lives. Um, I just read once, I don't, I don't recall whether it was a sutta or just one of the commentaries, uh, where it described somebody who, who fell into a cesspool and then somehow got out and was bathed and cleaned you know, and asked, well, do you want to go back? And of course, there was no interest. In this particular commentary, that's how it was described the Davis relationship to this earth plane. <laughs> you know, that it's a very refined, luminous existence up there, or down there, or wherever. And for the most part, they don't have much interest. But the one place of connection really has to do with Dharma practice. And many of the suttas actually are of the Buddha giving teachings to the devas. And the suttas will describe how a deva comes down, usually at midnight, you know, illuminating the whole grove, you know, with their with their light. And what particularly it said attracts this energy is the high a high level of sila, because that really is, you know, a tremendous level of purification. This is related to a question that comes a little later on, but something I wanted to mention uh, of how important it is to understand that the training that we're undergoing is not simply meditation practice, that that's one limb. Buddha talked of three trainings, of dana, of sila, and of bhavana, of generosity, of virtue or morality, and of mental development, meditation. And it's like a tripod, you know, and they each support one another. And especially as we start thinking of how to bring this practice out into our lives and in the world, a big part is maintaining the meditation practice, but an equally important um, field of training, not simply something 
to think that we have down, you know, and that we're basically generous or moral people, but really to see those areas as fields of training and development and refinement. Because there's tremendous potential you know, in our development in those areas. And they're the cause of a great, great happiness and beauty in our lives. Those are the energies which attract this deva presence. Um, in terms of prayer, you don't find that so much in the Buddhist teachings, sort of praying to deities to help out. Um, Although one of the benefits of the metta meditation, which if you remember from some of the talks early in the retreat, when the metta is well developed, it's like there is a protection that's given uh, by Davis. And so there is this protective quality. And there may be some times in your life where you've actually felt that. There have been times when I have, where, where there's just a sense... Of, of protection. After my first time in India, when I, when I first went to practice, I was there only for about six or seven weeks, and it was the first introduction to Vipassana. As I was leaving, I was going back from Bodh Gaya to the train station in Gaya, in one of the rickshaws, and Munindra, who was my first teacher, he was kind of seeing me off and he said something which at the time I felt or thought just to be a kind of platitude. Over the years I have come to appreciate the power of it so much. As I was leaving, he said, the Dhamma protects those who protect the Dhamma. It's true. And there's this tremendous protection when we ourselves are protecting the truth, are protecting the Dhamma, when we're living that, when we're embodying it. Um, this, is, this is the other question related to this. For someone who is determined to achieve enlightenment, would you recommend anything else beside continuous sitting and walking meditation until liberation? As you probably guessed by now, I'm a big fan of sitting and walking. You know, it's been so powerful in my own life and just seeing what can happen from the simplicity of this continuity of practice, the tremendous energy and power and insight develops. But it's only one of the legs of the tripod. And for the most part I've seen that people go in cycles. There are cycles when there's a lot of energy for intensive practice and you can really sustain and keep building it. And at a certain point, you begin to lose momentum. It may be after six months or four months or three months or two days. <laughs> you know, everybody is, is at their own, their own individual level. There are very few people who I've seen who can just go on indefinitely maintaining you know, the peak level of practice. 
And so I see it much more in terms of cycles and rhythms. There are times, and many times, to take periods of long intensive practice. If one is really concerned about liberation, if that is the central uh, aspiration in one's life, it can be done. I think it actually can be done. It takes a tremendous commitment and it takes learning the rhythm of chunks of time of intensive practice, of times of developing the paramis that Steve has talked about, the parami of generosity, the parami of morality, the parami of renunciation, of truthfulness. There are so many arenas in which to work on the mind. Um, and sometimes situations in our lives outside of retreat become so fruitful for seeing where our attachments are and where our fears are and those are the places of purification. Those are the places to work, to look, and to investigate. There's a few Mahayana Theravada questions. How do we know that just because the Buddha went through all four enlightenment stages in one night, that that is the way all Buddhas do it? Do you believe taking the Bodhisattva vow can really prevent you from becoming a stream entrant? Why is there such a big difference between the Mahayana and Hinayana Bodhisattva meaning in vow? Which do you think is correct? What does the Mahayana have that could aid a Theravada perspective? What does a Theravada perspective have that can aid a Mahayana perspective? What has been of tremendous help to me in sort of wending one's way through the different traditions and different teachings and uh, which at the core are the same within the whole spectrum of Buddhism, but which have a lot of variations and have some differences. The biggest help for me was coming to see that there were things I knew and things I didn't know. And about the things I didn't know, it seemed futile to have an opinion because the opinion was based on nothing. (laughs) So why have an opinion about it? Many of these questions, I think the best we can say is, according to this tradition or this teaching, it's like this. According to this tradition, it's like this. As we go deeper and as we see for ourselves, to the extent that we know, then we'll be able to say, and to the extent that we don't know, it's best to keep an open mind. I don't know that any of the other teachers have mentioned about Ananta Maitreya coming on Monday night. This is the Sri Lankan monk. He's 94 years old. He's one of the most wonderful, open-minded monks of Sri Lanka. He's like the, the grand old monk of Sri Lanka. Uh, 
years ago. I visited him there. Of course, he was steeped in the Theravada tradition. That's his practice and, and you know, what he learned. But he also had studied the Mahayana and actually was teaching, I think maybe in one of the universities or someplace, teaching the Mahayana. So he had a very kind of broad view. When I went, I asked him whether he thought it was possible that out of compassion and arhant, somebody who was fully enlightened, could choose to come back to help which is not a Theravada, classical Theravada view at all. You know, the, the classical view is that when you're fully enlightened, that's the end of the cycle of rebirths. And when I asked him this question, he said, well, maybe. Which to me, I mean, it may not seem like a lot to you, <laughs> but <laughs> given, the, given the, you know, the strictness of the tradition, it was quite... But quite a statement from somebody in his role, uh, and it just it just exemplified this attitude, you know that there are many mysteries in this universe, and to realize that there are a lot of things we don't know. In thinking about you know the different traditions and what perspectives from each could actually aid the other. And this is this is tremendously simplifying things because each of the traditions is tremendously rich and varied. But the, the salient features of each that just came to mind in thinking about the question, what I appreciate so much in the Mahayana tradition is the very great emphasis on the idea that we practice for all beings, that we're not practicing just for ourselves. And that, that sense of bodhijita, the heart of enlightenment, which is really practicing for everyone. I think that is a tremendously empowering attitude to have. Sometimes in the midst of great difficulties in practice, you know, where we're really struggling, the thought or reflection that we're not doing it just for ourselves, we're doing it for everyone, can be a tremendous support and a tremendous help for us uh, because it's inspiring. You know, it takes us out of our own small identifications and it just makes our heart and mind very big. So that's the aspect of the Mahayana that, that I think we can really incorporate in this tradition. What I think is so wonderful about the Theravada, or the salient feature, is its great simplicity. One of the other questions that came up was just asking if I could speak a little bit about my own practice and training and how it all evolved. That would be a whole talk. But just on this particular point, uh, I went to India looking for a teacher because I had started to practice on on my own. And I went off to a retreat just by myself when I came back from the Peace Corps. 
And I was driving myself crazy. I was mixing up a million different traditions. I was chanting Om and doing mantras and watching the third eye and feeling the breath. And I didn't know what I was doing. And all, you know, all this energy started to build and I had no idea at all what was going on. So I realized that I actually needed some guidance. Uh, I went back to India and I went to a bunch of different places. I ended up in Bodh Gaya, which is the place the Buddha was enlightened. When Munindra was teaching at that time, just he was teaching four Danish people. It was very quiet at that time, not many Westerners. I went, I got the instructions. What most connected with me was its simplicity. There was no trip. There was no cultural trip. There was no spiritual trip. Munindra said, if you want to understand this mind and body, observe it. And it just seemed so simple and so right. And you can see, after all these months of practice, even though the practice is not easy to do, it has the most profound simplicity about it. We drop back into the moment and observe. And from that observation, the whole of the Dhamma unfolds. Someone has had the insight of no self outside of this practice, such as Bernadette Roberts, who wrote The Experience of No Self. Does that constitute stream entry? For those of you who are not familiar with that book, Bernadette Roberts is... Uh, a Catholic, is she ordained? Uh, She's an ex-nun. An ex-nun. Uh, who had some very profound experiences and wrote this book, The Experience of No Self. Um, it's extremely difficult to say, you know, from reading the book, what a person's experience uh, is. Specifically, I think what's helpful to understand uh, particularly for ourselves, you know, in our own experience, is that there is a spectrum of insights into anatta, or selflessness. Um, and so all along the path, and I'm sure you've had many moments of just seeing or understanding the selflessness of a phenomenon, <clears throat> either in that sense of things just going along and they're happening by themselves. You know, we just settle into the rhythm of phenomena and there's no one doing anything. It's just phenomena rolling on. Another characteristic flavor of an insight into anatta is sometimes as we're practicing, there can often be the sense or sometimes be the sense that all of it is happening to someone else. You know, and there's just this, this kind of feeling that it's not happening to me. That also is a, a, the flavor or an insight into anatta. The basic experience of selflessness comes from the deepening observation of the impermanence of things. Because as we refine our perception of the momentariness of phenomena, we see as things are rising and vanishing so quickly, it becomes clear that that 
couldn't possibly be self because <laughs> it's gone as soon as it arises. There's nothing there. There's nothing substantial. There's nothing that could be self. And so in the course of our practice, there's this whole spectrum of insight. It actually is... I don't know what the right word is. It's like confirmed or seen most deeply or... The idea, of self, the idea of self is really cut through at the moment of opening to Nibbana, to the unconditioned. It's like a moment anyway, a, a nice or perhaps a helpful image for that moment is that of the number zero. It's like becoming zero. What's interesting about zero is that in the number system, zero is a very powerful number. In some ways, it's the most powerful number. It's not... It's not nothing. (laughs) But it's zero. And maybe in some way that's an analogy. For this, it's this moment of zero is very powerful in cutting through the idea that there's someone there. Because we've actually gone beyond somethingness. I sense that for most mortals, but the path to enlightenment usually excludes a high output of creative life work. Maybe because most of us need to choose between spending time working at creativity or doing a lot of formal practice. Could you comment? Any hints on how to make your creative endeavor your practice? There's another. Uh, could you speak of right livelihood? How to find it? And the integration of spiritual practice and work. You know, a a beautiful example of the integration of practice and creativity was Stephen Mitchell when he came. And what was so inspiring to me in in what he was relating (coughs) was his sense, his own sense of how the deeper his practice became, the more connected he could feel with the poets he was translating. You know, and Creativity, a really deep creativity, I think, is intimately connected with the stillness and silence of mind. Uh, and so the deeper our practice becomes, I think it really opens us, up, opens us to a much deeper wellspring of creative, creative endeavor. So this very clearly some years ago there was an art exhibit in the Worcester Museum. It was a visiting exhibit. Some of the scroll paintings of the old Japanese Zen masters. An exhibit from Japan. And it was so amazing. It was on the top floor of the museum. And we went up and it was like entering a whole other world. And it was a world of such beauty 
because it was so clear that that art or that expression came out of places of tremendous stillness and tremendous sense of oneness. It was like being in a deva realm. And what was so striking on that particular evening was as we walked down and as we were leaving and went through some of the other floors and other exhibits, there was such a contrast, just in the feeling sense, of where so much of the other art, the place in us that it came from, you know, which seems so different than the place of those, of those Zen masters. Perhaps an equally creative process. But it just highlighted again that stillness doesn't mean deadness. That actually the stiller we are, the more alive we are because we're connected with much deeper places of intuition. It's not so much the rehashing of things. When we're still, that's where I feel the true spontaneity is. The other stuff, which we've been watching for the last three months, that gets boring. (laughs) 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 You know, it's just... It's just the same old stuff (laughs) over and over again. Um, So I don't see them as separate at all. I see them as very related. Creativity and silence of mind. The question of right livelihood is a big one. I mean, I think it's one of the great challenges that we have, especially in our Western Western Dhamma scene. You know, when you're in a monastery, you don't have a problem about right livelihood. That's right livelihood. But for most of us, at least for now, we haven't chosen to go the monastic route. We're living as lay people, living in the world. And yet at the same time, and in ways that are not so common in Asia. Many people deeply committed to liberation. Not just practicing to be reborn in a heaven world or a deva world. There's a strong commitment that many people have to really wanting to be free. In Asia, many of those people would enter the monasteries. But we're evolving something different, at least for now. And so this question of how to bring this dedication, this interest and aspiration into our work is a very key question. Uh, and I don't have many answers. You know, I think this is the challenge for all of us. This is what we're going to be discovering. You know, it's like our generation of practitioners will be able to pass on you know, a wisdom that has been forged through a lot of difficulty because it's not easy. There's one story which epitomizes for me the spirit that's possible to bring to our work. And I don't think it's terribly important 
what kind of work we do, you know, barring some things which are obviously harmful. And there are many beautiful kinds of service work, but I think very ordinary kinds of work can also be right livelihood and be part of a path. The story is of Kala Rinpoche going to visit the aquarium in Boston. And just as he was walking through the aquarium, he would tap on each of the windows to kind of get the attention of the fish. And as the fish kind of swam up to it, he would just kind of say very quietly, Om Mani Padme Hum, Tibetan blessing. Just to go through life, you know, (laughs) blessing. It's really beautiful. Deepama was a lot like that. I mean, just, she, she was always blessing. You know, she was blessing people and animals and airplanes. And wherever she went, there was just these blessing. You know, be happy, be happy. If somehow we can practice that in our work, in our relationship lives, that spirit is tremendous. You know, it really transforms what could be a very ordinary job into something that really is carrying us along the path. That takes a lot of presence of mind. It takes a lot of mindfulness to remember to do that. Um, what is it that gets attached? The body seems to do the grieving but is it the body that gets attached to some state or peace or place or person? Similarly, what is it that gets identified with the body or state? Is identification a word that accurately describes what happens? It's not actually the body that grieves or the body that gets attached. Because if it were, if it were the body then corpses would grieve. And corpses, there's the body. But it's not the body. The body is just material elements. It's a, it's a process. It's the fact that there's a mind, there's consciousness suffusing this body. That's both what gives it life and actually what gets attached and suffers and what can be free. The state of the mind affects the body. You know, in, in all of the cause and effect relationships, one of the one of the four is mind conditioning body. And so if there's grief in the mind, then we often feel it, you know, through our bodies. Or if there's anger in the mind, we feel it in the body, or happiness or excitement. So the place to look we can observe it, we can observe those, those bodily sensations, but the place to really look at where we're caught, where we're identified, that's with the mind state. I think identification, identification with something is an accurate description of the actual process. And one of the easiest places to see that, and a place that we have endless opportunity to observe is when we see for ourselves the difference between being lost in a thought 
and being mindful of a thought. When we're lost in a thought, there is that strong identification process. We are identified with it. We're caught in it. We're lost in it. We're carried away by it. And it can carry us quite a long distance. And you know, you know what that feeling is like. And how different that is from those times when the mindfulness is strong and you actually are observing the thought arising and there's no identification at all. Thinking, thinking, thinking. The thought comes and goes and it has no power. One of the most amazing things to observe about our life and experience is how unknowingly we give so much power to the thoughts. We become slaves to thoughts. And it's just so amazing. Thoughts come, do this, do that, do that. (laughs) You know, they drive us crazy. And yet, when we see them for what they are, when the mindfulness is strong enough, they're nothing. (laughs) They're these little blips. They're these little ghosts. (laughs) And just that contrast between the power that they have when we're not mindful, when we are identified with them, and the complete lack of power when we're simply observing them come and go, that can be tremendously liberating. But as you see and have seen now for several months, it takes a lot of alertness, a lot of sharpness of mind to be aware of thoughts arising. They're extremely slippery. You know, and if you're watching out here, they sneak in from behind. But, you know, just as our practice evolves, two things happen. One is that our observing power gets much quicker, and so we're sharper in our observation. We pick them up faster. And the second thing is that the mind actually gets quieter. So instead of this flood of thoughts all the time, they don't come as frequently. And so the mind actually starts abiding in a more peaceful place. There's a few questions. Could you speak on being assertive from a place of compassion rather than from a place of aggression or aversion? You mentioned earlier that there are ways of skillfully responding to an aggressor when one doesn't have the opportunity to process one's own anger first so as to communicate from a place of compassion. Could you elaborate on these ways to respond skillfully even when angry? There's one more. I know we're all one, but could you say something about ego boundaries? I found myself adopting myself to other people's preferences in order to be a nice guy, to not cause friction, etc. At times the situations are so petty that to be oppositional would only cause me and others unnecessary suffering. At the same time, I find myself feeling resentful. What to do? 
I sent the same letter to dear Abby. As the retreat ends, I can already feel my social self congealing. What was my retreat like? How did I do? Is there any way to retain a sense of process and emptiness while interacting with others? Sign, nobody now, but somebody soon. Problem, though the questions about interaction, um, I think there are two two sides to it. One side is to learn how to communicate effectively. The other side is to learn how to listen effectively. Um, I was just listening to a tape of Robert Bly talk about um, the vision of William Blake. And Blake had described sort of different levels of consciousness. One level kind of the lowest level of real narcissistic concerns, you know, where we're just so caught up in self. And the second level where actually there begins to be communication between people. You know, and that's where he, he talks about the first level as being really cold, you know, ice. And the second level, there begins to be some fire of connection. And the third level uh, what he calls the level of merging or becoming one or the, the realm of love. And the fourth level, the realm of creativity. He quoted another very nice poem about that second level, the, the level of connecting, of communication, which would serve us extremely well if we actually do it. This is a poem by Antonio Machada. If you want to talk, first ask a question and then listen. And so somehow I think that in in a lot of these questions, If we want to talk to somebody, even from a place of being angry or resentful or you know whatever whatever stuck place or or intense place we may be in, if we can remember that the other person always has their point of view, you know, their perspective. And if we can remember that, and if we want to talk, first ask a question 
and then listen, it just opens up the space. Instead of it being this huge confrontation, you know, of two people very attached to their viewpoints and ideas and feelings, if we can bring that acknowledgement that we're all conditioned in very different ways, and we all see the world in different ways, and that's a great beauty. Can we take that moment just to say, okay, let me try to understand it from this point of view. That takes a lot of listening. In that space, I think it becomes quite easy then to say what we have to say without aggression, you know, without great anger. It doesn't mean that we don't also communicate our own perspective, but if we first ask the question and listen, already the the ground between people has changed. I think very often we don't listen enough. You know, we don't get behind the other person's the other person's viewpoint. In terms of doing things, you know, always to please others and feeling the need to create a stronger sense of ego boundary, I don't conceptualize it quite in that way as kind of creating an ego boundary, although that may be, you know, one way of expressing it. It seems to me more important in each situation really to be clear about what's going on in our minds. There's nothing wrong with doing things to please people. In fact, (laughs) it's nice to do that, you know. And so in each situation, if we can be there and actually come from a place of generosity, Yes. Even if it's not something we particularly want to do, in order to please somebody, that's fine. I, that, given the right attitude in our own hearts, I think that can be a wonderful practice. And if we can't get to that place, to really acknowledge you know, in ourselves, okay, I'm not in that place, I can't do that now. And so it's not so much to create some kind of solid sense of boundary yourself, It's just in each situation to see where we are, to see what's arising in the mind. And sometimes even when we don't want to do something, I think a good practice at times, if there's an interest in cultivating this extension of ourselves, to do things anyway. Because if we can get there with the proper attitude, that also is really a cultivation of generosity. Um, When I do, I do that a lot on retreats. Um, 
you know, there, there might be a, a whole day of interviews. And then I either get a note or somebody comes up to me and says, you know, can I just speak to you for one minute? One minute doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, it's never one minute. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I might be tired or you know, just feel filled up. But I really see it as a practice. Okay, you know, can I just make some more space? Can I extend myself in that way? I found that it's both a great practice to try to do it and also a good practice, if I feel I can't, to be able to say, well, not now. Well, let's meet some other time. So it just comes back to getting there for that moment and what actually is going on in us. The more intensely I do the practice, the more confused I am about my need for psychotherapy. (laughs) What are your criterion for psychotherapy versus, say, more practice? (laughs) I think there's a a line in Zorba the Greek that says that self-knowledge is always bad news. (laughs) Um, Three months of practice probably reveals that. You know, because we just see all this bizarre conditioning in the mind. Uh, There are times when therapy can really be helpful. I think it works on quite a different level than the meditation practice. It's in the meditation we're really looking both to accept whatever is arising and to see the momentariness of phenomena. We're not trying to figure out where the particular conditioning comes from. We're not kind of tracing back, you know, why are these patterns of thoughts there? And often in in therapy that can be done. We can get an understanding, well, listen, this happened in my childhood, and so we begin to understand why the patterns are there. That can be helpful, especially if there's a pattern you know, that is really dominating our lives in a unskillful way, the therapeutic level of understanding can help kind of create some space just, just through understanding it. Um, it doesn't particularly lead to the sense of the momentariness of phenomena and the selfless nature of phenomena. Some years ago, I was doing some Jungian therapy. I was doing a lot of dream, dream analysis. And there were some really bizarre dreams. <laughs> I mean, I had dreams in which I would wake myself up in the middle of the dream because I didn't want to have to tell my therapist this dream. <laughs> I better just wake up quick. <laughs> I mean, they really were some weird ones. Uh, He didn't approve of that. And it was really useful. I was just exploring, you know, a lot of the dark shadow side of what's in there. What came out of it, and I think what, what was the most useful thing out of, you know, that time of working 
Actually, it was two things. One, that who we are is a package. It's just a package of a lot of different qualities. And there are strengths, and there are weaknesses, and there are heroic parts, and there are some really bizarre parts. You know, and it's kind of there's the Joseph package, and there's the you know each one of us package. And the great realization that for me came out of that work in therapy was that I didn't have to do anything about it. That I could just accept the whole package. This is the package. I didn't have to kind of get in there and try to change or fix or improve or any of that. And that level of seeing that it was a package and seeing that actually I could accept the whole thing was tremendously freeing. I think a lot of that attitude or the ability to do that comes through the meditation practice. Because as we just sit and we watch and we observe and we accept, because we see that whatever it is that's arising is not self, it's not me, it doesn't belong to anybody, it's just conditions. And so we don't have to be so bound up in them, in terms of them running our lives, and we don't have to get to feel that somehow we have to fix it or change it. I don't know if this exactly answered the question, but maybe one more. As you can see, there are lots and lots of questions here. Um, Did the Buddha teach any other path to liberation besides the practice of mindfulness? Sometime after the retreat, I think it would be interesting for you to read the Satipatthana Sutta. That's the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. And it is sort of just the cornerstone of all of the Buddha's teachings. Because he both begins it and ends it by saying, this is the one way or the direct way to the overcomer of suffering, the liberation of beings. What's interesting in the reading of this sutta, and it's about the foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of the mind, and of mental states, that in each of those categories, there are many different techniques which are outlined. And so it's not that there is one technique of mindfulness which which we need to follow. Just in the mindfulness of the body, there are nine or ten or eleven different ways to practice that. Uh, The same thing with the mindfulness of feelings in the mind. Um, 
for those of you who would like to experiment with some other ways of cultivating this very same mindfulness, there's a whole long series of cemetery meditations and bloated corpse meditations and uh, other goodies. (laughs) Different ways of watching the mind. And so I think it would be interesting after having done these three months of practice you know, to, to look at this sutta, which is uh, you know, the very direct teachings of the Buddha about these different techniques of mindfulness which actually lead to freedom, which lead to nibbana. What I think will be very helpful in these next days is to start practicing and working with the understanding that The purpose of practice, of what we have been doing, is to deepen our understanding of the nature of this mind, the nature of this body, so that we really understand it in the deepest and most profound ways possible. The process of the mind and body does not stop at the end of the retreat. that our life is of a piece and in it we do different things. Use these last few days of the silence and then in the days coming out of the silence to see if you can keep your observing power